Amen. We praise God for just the amazing music that uh, we were blessed with today. Uh, can we give, just give God a hand clap of praise this, uh, this morning? Is that all right? Is that, is that appropriate? Give God a hand clap of praise today. And uh, just, I just, I have to declare this as we get ready to start uh, this, this, um, this morning. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually in my mouth. I will make my boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us, let us exalt his name together. For the Lord, he is good. And his mercy endureth forever. Do I have any worshipers in the house of God today that's just willing to give God some glory, to just praise him, to just, just exalt his name today? Any worshipers today? Can we just give God a, a hand clap of praise today? Amen. 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 We serve amazing God. I just want to uh, bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Huntsville, Alabama at the First Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, where we are trying to create a church where broken lives are being made whole. Um, I, just, I always love coming back home. I'm a graduate of Forest Lake Academy and um, graduated in 1997, married my high school sweetheart um, from the academy, and, and God has blessed us with four children, um, who seems to have delayed her arrival. Um, <laughs> we have one girl and three boys, and uh, just is never a dull moment. And we just praise God just for his rich blessings. Um, it's, it's crazy uh, just how to think of how Forest Lake really changed my life. Um, I just, I've just seen a number of my teach, former teachers. I saw Coach Fulbright and I saw Captain this morning. And I just think of James and Stephanie Johnson who poured into us and Gail Murphy. And then I had two of the best Bible teachers ever, Kevin Pride and Uncle Larry. Uh, I don't know if I have any Forest Lake grads that had Uncle Larry's class in the house. Do I have any Forest Lake, Uncle Larry? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. What's up, man? Hey, yeah. So um, I wasn't supposed to do that, guys. So, um, yeah, I just, Uncle Larry, great, um, great teacher, great man of God. Just had the Bible, and we, that was our textbook. And I just praise God for his ministry. Praise God for his ministry. And so we're going to get right into the Word, if that's all right with you. Uh, this, this morning, I um, thank God for your senior pastor, Pastor Patterson, and the staff. They've just done an amazing job. Um, can we affirm their leadership? Amen. Can we affirm their leadership? Um, I, re, I remember a few weeks ago, and all of us here in the um, Orlando community, those that are from um, Orlando as well, just we all mourned with the tragic loss of life. But this church, this church, uh, was one of the leaders in the nation. Um, in the, the Christian response. And I, that just, that can only be attested to just godly vision, vision um, centered leadership. And I just praise God for Pastor Patterson and the staff here. I want to invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 11. Book of John, chapter 11. And we're going to focus our attention on verse 1 to start, to begin. We're going to read a few passages of scripture. And then we'll get started with our message today. That's John the 11th chapter, and we'll start with verse, verse 1. I'm reading out the King James Version of the Bible. This is what it says. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair 
whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now let's skip down to verse 17. And the Bible says, Then when Jesus came and he found that he had lain in the grave four days already, um, now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Now skip down to verses 33 through 35, and the Bible says this, When Jesus therefore saw her, that being Mary, weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest passage of scripture that is recorded in verse 35, the word of God says, Jesus wept. With your prayers and God's help, I want to preach under the subject this morning, Jesus wept. If you'll bow your heads with me as we invite God's presence. Eternal Father, we are just thankful for the grace and mercy of God. Lord, we are ever mindful that if it had not been for, on the, for the Lord on our side, where would we be? And so right now, God, I just ask that I would decrease and that you would increase and that, God, you would be high and lifted up today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Jesus, Jesus wept. Um, I remember a few years ago, there was a song that, that came out um, on the airwaves entitled, Big Boys, They Don't Cry. Uh, big boys, they don't cry. And, and the message, I think, of the song is pretty clear, and that is that grown adult men typically, and this is a myth that has been perpetuated by a number of songs, but grown men typically are not creatures of emotion, um, that they, they should not show feeling, that they should not, they should not show much emotion. Um, other songs have continued to perpetuate this myth. And if we were to do like a poll in the house of God today and we were to ask some of our sisters here uh, uh, whether or not they desire, they, they were kind of desiring that their significant other, whether it be their husband or their boyfriend, would show just a little bit more emotion. Uh, I'm sure some of you raise your hand, but don't look to the right, don't look to the left. Just keep looking up here. Don't, don't look at your husband. Don't look at your boyfriend right now. Keep your eyes focused right on me. And so, um, the reality is that that is what some women would say, that they just wish that their husband would just kind of show just a little bit more emotion. But I don't know if that's really truly the case. And I just want to just kind of test this this morning. Um, I just, I just want to paint some scenarios. What, what would happen if um, some of the ladies, if your man got lost while y'all were driving and, <laughs> and all of a sudden he just breaks out in tears? I'm not sure if you'd be, I'm not sure if you'd really want that. Or, or maybe you're in a situation, you're driving down I-4, it's just sweltering heat, it's just, I mean, it is just blazing hot, and all of a sudden the tire goes out, and so he goes to the back, and he begins to start to try to get the lugs off the tire, and he gets so frustrated because it's just so difficult, and then he just starts to cry. Or maybe, or maybe you're in a situation where, um, you're laying next to your husband, and all of a sudden, there, you hear a noise in the next room. 
And instead of him slipping out of the bed and going to check that thing out, he just starts to weep next to you. Now, we've, we've, we've all heard different um, wives kind of talk about how they wish that their husband would show some more emotion in a movie or in various different, um, various different venues. And so sometimes, man, just, if we're just honest, we're just confused, guys. As men, we're just confused. Like, does she want more emotion or does she not want? I mean, we just, we're just kind of not sure what, what, what we should do. Um, but what's something that's interesting is that psychologists have actually done studies on the difference between how men and women process emotions. And some of the things that they, they say, some of the things they put out, they said this. Um, one author says this, emotions live in the background of a man's life and the foreground of a woman's, says psychologist Josh Coleman, PhD author of The Lazy Husband. <laughs> he, he, he wrote a book. He was not helping us out, all the husbands. This guy was, Josh was not helping us out. Uh, another, another author says this, testosterone dampens feelings in men who compartmentalize and intellectualize more. Women seem naturally more in touch with their emotions, while men have to work at it, but when they do, it's a good thing. It's a win-win situation. They discover a new, whole new dimension of themselves. Their relationships are happier, and they are happier too. This is written in the book Inside the Male Brain. Another author says this, why are men so emotionally clueless? Man, they're not helping us out today. Blame the male brain. Men are hardwired differently, says David Powell, PhD, president of the International Center for Health Concerns, who explains that the connection between the left brain, home of logic, and the right brain, the seat of emotions, is much greater in women than it is in men. He continues and says, women have the equivalent of an interstate highway, so they move readily between right and left brains. For men, though, the connection is like a meandering country lane. So we don't really quite have ready access to our feelings. And so, I mean, all of these authors kind of illustrate for us the, something that we know intuitively, and that is that the, the truth is that when a man shows emotion, when a man cries, you can be sure that something significant, something major has taken place. When, when a grown man sheds tears, we can be assured that something monumental has taken place in the life of that man. And as we look at the Word of God today, what we discover is that there are only two places in Scripture where we see Jesus Christ weeping or shedding tears. There's only two places in all of Scripture where we see our Lord and Savior crying. And the first one is what we just read in John chapter 11. And what we have to remember about Jesus is that although Jesus was a man, Although he was God, he was also a man. And so for Jesus to cry, we know that something significant, something major has taken place in this particular passage. In John chapter 11, verse 1 and 4, just reading again, this is what the Bible says. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And see, what I love about Mary and Martha is that when they were in trouble, they knew exactly who they needed to go to. 
Here is, they go to Jesus. Here is a man, saints of God, here is a man that at the wedding feast in Cana, he spoke to water, and water upon hearing its vo- his voice blushed and turned into wine. That's the guy that they went to. Here is a guy that opened up a supermarket in the middle of a desert and fed 5,000 people. Here is a man that was so powerful that a woman found a pharmacy in the hem of his garment. And the disease that the doctors could not heal, the Bible says that she was healed from this issue of blood. And what I love about this is that Jesus did this for people that he didn't even have close relationships with. These were people that he was burdened for, and the Bible says that he healed. And so now Mary and Martha, Jesus' close friends, his, his aces, his, I'm going to use some slang here, his ace boon coons. These, I mean, these are his peeps. These are his folk. The Bible says that he goes, and the Word of God says that they, they, they reach out to him, They're, they have a close relationship with him, and they know that if they ask Jesus to come heal their brother, that surely Jesus will come. He's going to come and give them a holy hookup. But instead, the Bible says, instead of Jesus rushing to the home, the Word of God says that he hangs around several days. And not only does he hang around seven, uh, several days, he doesn't get there until Lazarus has already died. And what really stands out to me, saints of God, is found in verse 4. For the Bible says, and we just read it, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God so that God's son may be glorified through this. Now, I don't know if you can sense the tension in the text, saints of God, but this bothers me a little bit because what it seems like God is saying is that sometimes my sufferings and mishaps are for the glory of God. What it seems to be saying to me is that there are times in my life where it seems like my suffering, my issues, my calamities are for God's glory. But then the original kind of resolves it for me because when we think about the word glory, it's talking about kind of God's reputation. And so if we were to translate that for 2016, we would say something like this, this sickness gives God an opportunity to reveal himself. You know, I'm reminded of this song that was written a number of years ago. God is the joy of my, and the strength of my life. He moves on pain and misery and strife. The reality is, saints of God, that you would never know that God is able to deal with your pain and your hurt unless you had some pain and some hurt in your life. You would never know that God is a healer unless you had dealt with cancer in your life and God healed your body. You would never know that God is able to provide for your every need unless you had gone through a season of unemployment where there was still food on the table, where there was still clothes on your back, where there was still a roof over your head. You would never know that God is able to do unless you had experienced some hardship in your life. I'll never forget it. It was like yesterday. We were in church, and my wife was singing on the praise team, pregnant with our second child, months before the the, the due date. And she came to me at the middle of church and said, honey, I feel like there's something going on. I said, yo, do we need to go to the hospital? Do Do we need to leave right now? She said, no, I think I'll be okay. At the end of service that day, she said, I think something's wrong. We've got to go to the hospital. We went to the hospital, and upon arriving there, they told us that your wife is in labor, It's months 
your son's lungs are not developed like they should be. So what we've got to do is we've got to try to give your wife some steroids to try to halt this birth. And so church is praying. We're praying. Friends are praying. We're all praying. God, please just, just do not allow for our son to be born at this time. He was born anyway. And on that night, I'll never forget it, nurse practitioner came into the room and told us that your son that was born has only a 30% chance of living. He was born with a condition called hydrospitalis, where he was not able to properly manage the fluids in his body. And so for the next two and a half months, as they air vacuumed him over to the Children's Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, our little son was fighting for his life. Elders came in, anointed his head with oil. He was praying, praying, praying. And, and I, I can never forget, I will never forget it because I was just, God, why? Lord, we could've, you could have just held off this birth. He, his lungs could have been developed and we would not be in the situation that we're in right now. It wasn't until two months of living at the Ronald McDonald house, being there with our son every single day, that our doctor came in and she communicated us and said, you know, it's a real blessing. And she got my attention. As soon as she said blessing, I was like, okay, I, I'm with you now. Yes. She's like, it's a real blessing that your son was not born when he was born. I said, well, well I said, your son was born when he was born. I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, we would not have been able to treat his condition in your wife's womb, and we would actually not have discovered it. But because he was born when he was born, we were able to discover his condition. And the reason why he's alive today is because he was born early so that we could treat his condition. And how many in the house of God know today that we serve a God that is a healer? And I would have never known or experienced in my own life his healing power unless I had gone through this. This sickness, is that will, it will reveal God in a greater way. And I want somebody here in the house of God to know that you're going through something in your life, but God is revealing himself to you in ways that you cannot imagine. But you got to continue to trust God. you got to continue to hold on to his unchanging hand. you got to continue to believe that God is working it out for your good. I'll never forget as well my mother, who a few years ago died from cancer. I was a junior in college at Oakwood University, and she called me and told me that she had leukemia. And I watched for the next few years this woman of God battle for her life. And what I saw in my mother while she was dying of cancer was God, give her, she, God gave her a peace. He gave her an ability to be able to praise God in the midst of tremendous suffering. And I looked at that and I could not understand why. But even in my mother's struggle, and God does not promise to always remove the trial, but he promises that he'll give us strength to make it through. And I, as I looked at my mother and I saw her there, I begin to see God revealed in a new way. I begin to see a God that can give you a peace that passeth all understanding while you're in the midst of a storm. 
a peace that the world cannot understand, a peace that allows for you in the midst of pain and hurt to be able to still bless God and to still give him glory and to still honor God and still submit to the sovereignty of God. And so I saw God revealed in healing with my son, but I also saw God revealed as he gave my mom peace that passeth all understanding. This sickness gives God an opportunity to reveal himself. Now, Mary and Martha, they had sent the servant there to get help from Jesus. And so they get, the servant gets there and he hears Jesus and Jesus says to him, this sickness is not unto death. Now, when I hear that, I'm, I'm pumped now because this is the same guy, turn water into wine. This is the same guy that's opened the eyes of the blind. So he says to the servant, this sickness is not unto death. I am just like, oh man. And so that servant, he's excited. He's pumped. He's just like, man, this sickness is not unto death. And so he's, he hears the word from Jesus. He hears the word from Jesus. And he goes back to where Lazarus, where Mary and Martha are. But what, when he gets there and he sees Lazarus, it doesn't look like the situation has changed. He heard the word from Jesus, but then he gets there and it seems like Lazarus' condition is only getting worse. And then it gets so bad that now Lazarus ends up dying. And I think all of us, if we were honest in our Christian experience, we've all been, been there where we've had that faith dilemma where we've heard Jesus say something to us, but what we see taking place in our lives doesn't match what we heard from God. I don't know if there's any believers in the house of God today where, they, where you have been battling that tension, where, you have, where, where Christianity really hits the road, where you've heard a word from God or you've read a word out of the scriptures, but what you see taking place doesn't match what you heard from God. I mean, what do you do when what God says contradicts with what you see? What do I do when I step forward in faith, trusting in God to increase my giving for the cause of Christ? But when I look at my budget, what, what I heard God tell me to do doesn't match up with what I see. Or what do I do when I, 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 I call the elders for the church, as James chapter 5 tells me to do, and we anoint the sick person with oil, and the prayer of faith is supposed to heal the sick. I've heard what God says in his word, but then what I see doesn't match what I heard. Or what about if I'm in a situation where I have children that have gone into the far country of sin and I'm believing God that God is going to bring them back and that they're going to come back into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I see them, it doesn't seem like they're moving any closer to a relationship with God. And I want to suggest to us this, this afternoon that the, the way that we can navigate those faith dilemmas is understanding the difference between the facts and the truth. Understanding the difference between the facts and the truth because the truth is what God said, but the facts are what I see. And so the fact is that I don't have enough tuition money to enroll my child into Forest Lake Academy this next year. But the truth is that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The fact is that I'm struggling with some bad habits from my past, but the truth is that I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
The fact is that I may have enemies all around me, but the truth is that no weapon formed against me is going to be able to prosper. The fact is that my family may have turned their back on me, but the truth is that when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will bear me up. The fact is that I may have sickness in my body, but the truth is by his stripes, I am healed. The fact is that this world looks like it's going crazy, but the truth is that God is still in control. Is there anybody in the church building today that's seen some facts, but the reason why you're smiling, the reason why you're clapping, the reason why you're praising is because although you've seen the facts, you're standing on God's truth. You're standing on the truth of God's word. You're believing what he says. You're trusting in God and what he said. And you know that what he said, he is going to do. We got to learn the difference between the facts and the truth. And so in verse 17 through 27, Jesus now, he goes after waiting around a number of days to head down to be with Mary and Martha. And so when Martha sees him and she gets there, he gets closer Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what I want us to understand is that Martha is not complaining to Jesus here. Martha is not upset with the Lord. She's just acknowledging the truth that when Jesus is in a situation, he fixes stuff. When Jesus is in the building, stuff happens. And so she's just acknowledging the truth about if Jesus had been there. And so Jesus has a conversation, and he says to her, do you believe that your brother will live again? Live again? And then she begins to get all theological, and she says, well, yeah, I believe that he will live in the last days. And then Jesus says, no, I'm talking about, do you believe I am the resurrection and the life? And so then Mary, she comes, and she asks the Lord the same thing. Lord, if you had just been here, my, my brother would not have died. And, and, so, and so they had made this request, and it's clear now that Jesus said no to their prayer for healing. He had sent a servant, he had gone, Jesus does not come, so in essence, he said no to their request to heal their brother Lazarus. And so what happens to Mary and Martha is what happens to so many of us as believers. They got so stuck on God's no that they were not able to move with God to his greater yes. And what happens to us believers, saints of God, is that there are times in our lives where we're experiencing no's from God, but we don't understand that what God really desires for us is that he's saying no right now, but that no is leading to a greater yes in our experience with God. They're asking for healing. That's a no, but what God wants to give them is a resurrection. Sometimes God's no leads to a greater yes. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, we were trying to purchase a house in Huntsville, Alabama. And we still had our house in Tus we still had a house in Tuscaloosa. And so we got this realtor, we were going around, he was showing us various different houses. You know, I would comment, but it really didn't matter. It's whatever the wife wants, because how many know happy wife, happy life, um, husbands to stay right here, but you know it's the truth though. You know it's the truth. Don't, don't look at your wife, look right at me. And so, um, so pretty much I was just, yes, dear, yes, ma'am. I mean, as I've been married for 12 years, and the first, the best lesson I could ever learn is just saying, yes, dear. That, that's, 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 that's what you got to learn early. So for you young guys, yes, dear, that'll take you a long way. 
And so we're, we're, looking, we're looking for this house. And so she settled on something. And I said, yes, dear. Yes, dear. And so we're there. And, and so the, the realtor was kind of, kind of pushing us forward in different things. And so we kind of went forward, kind of feeling a little uneasy about it. And it didn't go through. And so we were just like, okay, I guess the Lord gave us a no. And my wife was a little bit disappointed, but we were just like, okay, well, we'll see what happens. And so a few months later, what we ended up discovering, and it's just amazing how God does this. We found out that the realtor that we were working with actually had an under-the-table deal with the builder. And so he didn't encourage us to negotiate. And in fact, we were paying more for the house than what we were supposed to be paying. And so we discovered this, and the Lord just blew the deal up. We ended up getting another realtor. The house was still on the market, the very same house. We ended up paying thousands of dollars less, and they gave us all these different bonuses for the house because God's no six months earlier led to a greater yes six months later. And somebody in the house just needs to know today that where God is saying no in your life, just trust him. Just believe in him. Just know that he's working it all out for your good. And now look what, look what else God does in this text. Verse 45, he says no to healing because he wants a resurrection. But then God does something else. Verse 45 says this. Therefore... Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. And so if Jesus heals Lazarus, Mary and Martha, they feel great, they feel good, they're so happy, but multitudes don't change. But because Jesus said no to healing, and yes to resurrection, people that Mary and Martha had been praying for, people that Mary and Martha had been fasting to see saved in the kingdom of God. The Bible says in verse 45, because God said no, that these people now believe in the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ because God's no leads to a greater yes. And so Jesus, he knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's going to heal Lazarus. And then in John 11, verses 33 through 35, as we're wrapping up, something strange takes place in the text. The Word of God says, When Jesus therefore saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the Bible says that Jesus wept. Now, if Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus up, why in the world would we see Jesus here weeping? And we know just because Jesus was a man that when we see men cry, that something significant, something major has taken place. Why would Jesus cry moments before he knows he's going to raise Lazarus up? But when we look at the original here, what we discover is that this word describing cry is the cry of silent tears. Tears which well up in your eyes and overflow and come down your cheeks. It's a silent weeping. It's the type of crying that someone has when they are sympathetic to a situation. 
And so what we see Jesus here crying, knowing that Lazarus is in right relationship with him, knowing that Lazarus knows him, we see Jesus crying for a situation because he's, 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 troubled by, he's troubled by the pain that, of death that humanity has to experience. You see, Jesus, being the creator, knows that he never intended for humanity to experience any of this. And so when he sees Mary, when he sees Martha, and he sees them crying and the pain and the hurt, he's touched with the feelings of their infirmities, and he just weeps and he cries as a result of that. He never intended this to happen. He never wanted this to take place. And, and, and so he sees this and he starts to get emotional and he starts to weep. But the second time that we see Jesus cry in Scripture, and there's only two times, is in Luke 19 and verse 41. And this is what it says. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and come past thee round and keep thee on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Here the word described for weep is not the same word in John. It is a word that describes an audible crying, a, a violent crying. Jesus is here is weeping uncontrollably, and he's weeping for the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because they refuse to repent. Why? Because he loves them so much. He's wanting to give them chance after chance, but they refuse to accept his mercy and his grace. He cries because he's desperate for them to see the goodness of God. He wants them to understand the gospel. He wants them to know that they're saved not based off of their performance. They're, he wants them to know that they're not accepted with God based off of what they do. He wants them to know that they're accepted with God because of how good God is. But they refuse to accept the grace of God. And so he weeps uncontrollably because he knows that for these people, these individuals, that when they die, they're not going to wake up and experience everlasting life. He knows like for these individuals, when, when they go to sleep, they're going to be raised in the second resurrection because they've refused to make Jesus their Lord. They've refused to accept the grace of God. And the question for us, saints of God, is how will Jesus weep for us in the house of God today? Will he weep for you as he wept for Lazarus where he knew what he was going to do because he was in a saved relationship and it was just a cry of sympathy knowing that he was going to raise him up because he's the resurrection and the life? Or will he cry for us as he wept for Jerusalem because he's done everything in his power to show us how loving, how gracious, gracious, how compassionate he is He's done everything possible to show us the gospel of, of his love, and we've refused to accept it. Jesus wept. How will he weep for us today? 
There's somebody in the house of God, you've been fighting a long time. You've been fighting God. You've been trying to save yourself. You've been doing all these different types of things. And what God wants you to know is that no matter where you stand currently, you may feel like, Pastor, I'm not where I should be in my walk with God. That doesn't matter. What God is saying to you today is that you can just come as you are because his acceptance of you is not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus did. But you've got to stop fighting and you've got to surrender your life to him. Who believes the word of God today? Who believes the word of God? Jesus wept. If you'll bow your heads with me as we close. Eternal Father, we, we come before you today. You're an amazing God. And there are many under the sound of my voice here today, Lord, that are just thankful for your mercy and for your grace. And our prayer today, God, is that you would weep for us not as you wept for Jerusalem, but that as you wept for Lazarus. Because that would suggest, God, that we are in right relationship with you and that we have accepted your grace in our lives. I pray, God, for us, Lord, today that we would accept the grace, the love, that we would see how amazing you are. That, Lord, that the, the deceptions of the enemy, the blindness and the darkness that he has placed many of us in, that our eyes would be open and that we would see a loving, gracious God with his arms extended open to invite us into fellowship with him. We love you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.